So we're doing a series on this book, Confronting Christianity, but if this question we're dealing with today interests you, that book is also massively worth a read. Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, it's a really good book that she wrote to help us see that the culture's critique of the Bible is actually not correct. And that's kind of what we're dealing with this morning, but before we get there, got some major stuff going on at Genesis Church. Love this church family. We're awesome, right? God is good to us. Uh, 17 years we've been in a Rockwood school, with, with the exception of a short season during COVID where we met in parks and parking lots and stuff like that. We've been at Eureka High School, been here, but because of some policy change uh, with uh, rental uh, standards for Rockwood, today is our last day, we believe probably ever, in a Rockwood school. Um, and so starting next week, we will be moving to Pacific Intermediate School for a season, okay? So uh, later in the service, we're going to come back to this, but I, 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 like this is, these three things I'm going to share with you are super important, and we need to talk about them now real quick so that they're kind of front and center in your thinking. You show up here next week, you're going to show up to an empty building. So make sure you find where that is and all that kind of stuff, okay? The second thing that is super exciting, and the reason I can tell you that this is a short season is because on July the 9th, two weeks from today, we are doing our groundbreaking. Yeah! It's going to be a great day. So we will have our normal morning gathering at Pacific Intermediate School. One of the things we talked about, uh, I, I talked about this with Kirk and Bob, a couple of the elders. Um, this move is going to make it so that whichever way you go to Pacific, you are going to drive by our property on a weekly basis. You're going to be watching the changes. And it's not too far away where you will literally see caterpillars and, and, and tractors moving dirt and, and then a building delivered and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to get rolling on this fairly soon. And so we want to have a ceremony. So we're going to do that right after church, 1230 on the 9th. Make sure you put that in your calendar. Um, we're going to come to the property after the service. We've got some great people joining us, including our mayor who's going to join, join us for that day and our state representative who are going to be there present and say a few words to us about, about that moment. We're going to give everybody a chance to grab a shovel and dig some dirt and uh, move a little dirt. Uh, the first dirt we will move for this new building, and it'll be a, a cool celebration. And then last thing is that I have, uh, I'm so excited about this. I'm excited about all this. Uh, so excited about this. We have some friends coming next week. Ramon and Diamond Rivera have become our, like, dear friends in Christ. Ramon performed Alex, my daughter Alex's wedding. Um, they are um, church planting residents and on the pastoral staff at Renewal Church, which is an urban church in Chicago where my daughter and son-in-law have attended for a long time, for six years now. And uh, Ramon and Diamond love on my, my son-in-law and daughter in, in great ways. And uh, he is, they're going to be with us next week. We're going to party with them. The Auburn family's going to party with them. We're going to eat some Puerto Rican food, just so you know. Right? They, they cooked for us at Christmas, and we were like, oh, snap, this is amazing. Uh, but... Uh, they are going to be eventually planting a church out of renewal in Chicago. And so we're going to have him here this week. We're praying as a church about maybe becoming a supporting church. And he's going to preach to y'all. And it's going to be a blessing. So you don't want to miss next week. You want to be here next week. Just don't go to the wrong school, all right? Uh, be here next week and hear Ramon uh, preach the gospel from the scriptures 
and just hear this, this brother who, man, he's, he's just, they're a great family. We're looking forward to having them with us. You'll get to meet them. And so make sure you attend that. All right, that's big three announcements. We'll come back to a couple of those at the end of the service and tell you how to get some more information. But I got a lot to cover. Long way to go, short time to get there. And so uh, uh, this idea of doesn't Christianity denigrate women uh, is a big cultural question. Um, listen, one of the things we need to realize, one of the hardest things that, like I sat with a friend this, uh, two weeks ago who was wrestling with the fact that his adult sons aren't attending church. This guy's in ministry. He's a pastor. And, and his adult sons, it's not that they've just been like, uh, you know, I, I don't believe this anymore. He just kind of distanced himself and got involved in relationships, things like that. And, and people are leaving the church like quite a bit. It, it's kind of a phenomenon for the last 15 years, actually last 25 years it's been going on that the number of people attending churches has dropped quite a bit. But one of the things that, that is being raised is that there are some attitudes and values coming out of the church that don't necessarily reflect uh, how the scripture treats and honors all people. Last week, we heard about the issues of race and diversity. This year, we're going to talk specifically to women. And so this is for all of us, but ladies, I hope this is for you. I hope this sermon is super encouraging, but I'm going to start by, by, by picturing it's not just the church that has had failures. Our culture has failed in this. In fact, I'm going to show you three real ads from like not too long ago in history, long in our lives, but not too long in history, and, and just see if you, you think these are healthy for our culture. So here's the first one. Check this out. Show her it's a man's world, Van Heusen. That's how we're going to sell ties. Kind of feeling good about that, right, guys? You're like, yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> All right, next one. Christmas morning, she'll be happier with a Hoover. Now, here's, here's the funny thing is, you heard my wife over here. I'm the only man in the room that that works for, okay? Just telling you, okay? From day one, the weight of my wife's heart has been power tools. Uh, but the rest of y'all, they don't try it, okay? Jewelry, cool stuff, trips, like that's the way to go. But the image here again of the woman who her job is in a home, get her a vacuum cleaner, that will make her life happier, uh, all right, here's the third one that we have for you. Husband-pleasing coffee. All right, now, here's, here's the point. Here's the reason I want to start with these. Of course, some of y'all are, like, already snarling. That is so offensive. Yes, it is. And yet, it's not just the church that kind of has failed here. Our culture, our, not just our culture, all cultures in the world have have really struggled with this question. And, uh, but, but here's the thing I, I just want to point out to you. From the perspective of our culture, this is still us. It, our people, I, I'm sorry, the picture wasn't up there. This is still us. I, the people in our culture kind of think that the Christian church in America are still promoting this view of gender, this view of, of women, this understanding of the way women ought to be and what they ought to do and how they ought to see their lives. And really, your job is to be the husband-pleasing, wife in the home, happily submissive to everything he wants, uh, and, and, and you, know, you know, barefoot, pregnant, and, you know, just your, your, your main role is to make your husband and your kids happy. And 
Sadly, there are places where the church is promoting that view of femininity as the ideal. Now, for some it is. I want you to hear me as I talk about other options for women, for women who say, this is my calling, I celebrate that. But to hold that up as the only way to be a good godly woman is actually denying the scriptures and denying a lot of stuff. And you couple that with the fact that we in Christianity have had massive failures. Like, I, you probably, most of you have no idea that two weeks ago, our faith tribe that, that we're connected to for mission, that is called Southern Baptist, held their big meeting. And the new, but if you picked up the news, it looked like we were anti women and that we actually stood against women. And there were some things that we did as a denomination that, that affirms things that I actually agree with, but that we do have some tone issues. The way we talk about these things really doesn't come off well. Um, and we have had situations where even when we have addressed things, we have done it in a way that, it, that has denigrated women. Now, I'm telling you, when we do that, it's not because we're really looking to the Bible and honoring the Bible. It's because we're fallen people, too, who mess this up. And no matter how hard we try, we can't get away from power dynamics. It is hard for anybody to give up power peacefully, even when they know Jesus. Um, but the more we're drawn to Jesus, the more we will do that. Yet, this is part of the, the, the struggle of, of our culture looking at us, and we need to try to be both people who articulate the gospel well, uh, but as we articulate the gospel well, we, we help learn this. And so this sermon is literally trying to help you see that the gospel has really, the, the Bible has really a vastly different message than sometimes what has even been put out in the church. Now, we couple to this the fact that Christianity has had, in our country, our culture, and even the faith tribe that I'm talking about, has had epic failures when it comes to things like sexual abuse, misogyny, the mistreatment of women. The, the fact that we had a seminary president who twice, now he's not anymore, just so you know, but twice had women come into their office in a seminary and said, this guy who's in the school raped me. And his response to her was, you need to forgive him and move on. That is not honoring women at all. That is hideous mistreatment of women. And, and that man has been, been, like, he lost his position because of this. I'm, I hate anybody being dismissed, but... I'm thankful that, that there's been some backbone in our convention to say no more of this. We, we have to stand clearly against this. Um, one of the things that came out of that meeting two weeks ago is that we actually removed fellowship from a church who just hired and didn't care a pastor who had raped and abused multiple women. Put him, in, put him up as their pastor. Oh, he's a good guy. He's working through repentance. Listen, there's certain things that when you do it, you can be forgiven by Christ. You no longer have the right to stand in front of God's people at any point in time in your life and preach again. Sorry. And so, so this is part of our story, um, you know, and, and we, we add a little bit sometimes the fact that we've been silent on justice issues, sometimes for political reasons, things like equal treatment of women and, and all the way back to voting, to, to equal pay and things like that. And, and, and there's a reason our culture does look at us and think, okay, we're still, 
like these three images. That's what the church, or at least evangelicalism, looks like. And what we're seeing is really great voices who speak into this, including the woman that we are point looking to and reading together. And if you're not reading the book, please get it and read it with us this summer. It is fantastic. Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. It is a fantastic book. And here's this beautiful feminine voice, this, this woman who is helping us navigate these massive questions. I'm so thankful for her. But from this, like I'm not preaching her book this morning. I'll pull some ideas and we're talking about things. But man, the book has so much more to say about history and about the journey through this. What I want to do is I want to show that the scripture doesn't even uphold what a lot of people think is the way women ought to live their lives in the church and point us to a beautiful, rich femininity so that we understand that if we are actually reading the scriptures well and applying the gospel well, not only will the church not denigrate women, but Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ will be the safest place for women, will be the place where they flourish and prosper the most, where their gifts and, 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 and their talents and their skills are most valued, and where they can most experience peace and beauty for the people that they are. That's our goal. All right, I, I heard about two guys saying, amen. Ladies, are you with me? Would you like that? That's what we ought to be, and that's the vision I think scriptures teach, that's what we want. And so just to tee this up, she was, Rebecca McLaughlin was talking about the, 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 the New Testament. I will tell you that the early church became massively compelling. They, the Roman world was a world where uh, women were, were property, that husbands would demand certain things from their women, uh, from their wives, and, and, and as they demanded those things from their wives, first of all, they, they just took wives. And when they just took a wife, she was expected to do all the things that a woman was supposed to do uh, and, and to be absolutely faithful. Meanwhile, he could mistreat her, misuse her, treat her as property, and also have sexual partners, go see prostitutes and have all kinds of sexual partners while she had remained faithful. And in this world, Christianity stood up and said, you are equal in the eyes of God. You are welcome here. Women flocked to the early church because it was the safest, best place for them to experience the full beauty of their humanity anywhere in the ancient world. And I'm just telling you, it ought to be the best place for women now. Okay? So to do this, I want us to turn to a passage that, that a lot of people you might be familiar with. That's Proverbs 31. We talk about the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, if you've been around Christianity for a while, if you haven't, if this whole faith journey is new, maybe you've never read this verse, but this is kind of this, in some ways, a picture of the ideal woman in Proverbs, although I'm going to try to destroy that image for you this morning a little bit. But there's something beautiful and rich about what is celebrated in this text. And also something huge that is going on. So grab a Bible, turn to Proverbs 31. Uh, if you don't have a Bible in your rows, there are some of the rows. We have baskets with some Bibles that we would love for you to have one of those and read along with us in Proverbs 31, page 615 in those Bibles, uh, or if you have an app or whatever. And I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to read the whole text to make a couple comments real quick as we're reading. But uh, when we get to the end, I want to share some like over-the-top things about this text and then use that as a way to talk about our theology and what should be our practice about the beauty of gender 
and God's purpose in that, okay? And so here we go. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Can I get an amen? All right, dudes. A lot of you just, just like, now your lunch is going to be terrible because when I asked you to amen that, you were like, mm, mm, mm. okay, so let me, let me read it again. Uh, she is far more precious than jewels. Amen. The, there we go. Now we're on the right track. The heart of her husband trusts her, and she, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wood and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Now, uh, in our vernacular, in ancient days, this means that she is making clothes. We're going to find out later she's turned this into a business, but she's making clothes and getting the food. In our vernacular, this is, uh, should say, uh, she gets to Walmart and Schnucks and Target and makes sure her kids have clothes for when they go to school. Uh, verse 15, she rises while it is yet night. And provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers the field and buys it. And with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Now, that's another amen moment. Here's a woman who is planting a vineyard. And like those of you who grew up Baptist, like, oh, she has grapes. Nope, she's making wine. Like, yes. That's in our job description now, right? Uh, verse, I'm sorry, I got off track there. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her uh, merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Again, a picture of, of a, a tactile, uh, tactile profession. She's making clothing. But as we read through this again, I'm telling you, it's more than just providing. She has a business that she has in this picture, okay? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is afraid of snow for, for her household. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. In other words, verse 21 is telling us that she is prepared for any season, and she's not caught off guard by the changing of the weather. She just, she's good at taking care of what, what her kids and her family needs. Uh, she makes head coverings, bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine uh, linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, and he sits along with the elders on the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers um, sassage, sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellent, uh, excellently, but you surpass them all. Uh, that, that's about my wife, just so, so you know, none of the rest of y'all can claim that. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works be praised in the gates. Now, it's a great text. Um, it, it is on one level saying, let's paint a picture of the beauty of femininity in, in God's purpose. But, but I, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, I want you to know some things that this text is not saying. This proverb is not saying a woman's worth is in the fact that she is married. The reason it's not saying, it's picturing a, a man who says, let me tell you about my wife, 
But the rest of Scripture point us to all sorts of women who are to be praised, who are to be honored, whose worth is beautiful. And so whether we are single or married, whether our pursuit is uh, uh, being uh, with a family and having a husband and a family, or being a single mom with, with loving on our kids, or being single and purposely single, no matter where we are in our journey, our worth, your worth is not tied to what your family situation is. The whole scripture points us to something greater. And so, so the first thing, we, we need to understand the proverb in its context, and this proverb is, is speaking to a, a man about what, his, like, find this kind of wife. But second, the woman's worth is also not tied to her being this type of woman. Like, like we can read this and go, okay, let's tell you who the good women and the bad women are. The good women look like this. And, and ladies, we can put that up as a standard for you and then say, okay, here's what it means to be feminine. Here's what you're supposed to do. You be a woman like this. And here's the problem with that. With, for me as a man to stand up and look at that and go, all right, here you go. Be this. And here's the big problem. You need to understand this text in its context. Okay? So dudes, listen to me. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is wisdom poetry that is written, written to teach us how to live in all the issues of life. It addresses every possible thing that you and I can encounter and shows us how to honor God and live with the fear of the Lord. But the perspective of Proverbs is written from an a older man really a father to his young adult or teenage sons. It is a 31-chapter conversation to young men going, this is what it looks like to live with wisdom in the world. And it addresses everything. It addresses the use of alcohol. It addresses being a worker. It addresses being uh, uh, you know, a man in the culture. It addresses this, you know, being careful about your sex life and, and not giving yourself to the wrong woman. But it addresses all these sorts of things. And for 30 chapters, Proverbs has been looking at dudes going, this is the type of man that God is calling you to be. And we ought to be reading this going, oh, I'm awful. I need the gospel, right? It, like, as you read this, you're going to, the way you read Proverbs is about every fifth or sixth proverb, you're going to read it and go, I don't like this one. And what we want to do is we want to skip that and go to the other five that we feel pretty good about and then name the people who need to hear that proverb. That's the way we read Proverbs. But hear me, for 30 chapters, men be this type of person. Men be this type of person. Men be this type of person. Now it applies to all people, but that's the voice of Proverbs. And then it gets to verse chapter 31 and says, and when you are that type of dude, go find this lady. And what we want to do is we want to run to Proverbs 31 and go, hey, ladies, be this, and ignore the first 30 chapters that is calling men to be different and better gospel-centered men who will give themselves away to their wives and be sacrificing to the world around them. So if you're going to read chapter 31 and read it to your wife, you better be ready to read the first 30 chapters to yourself. Okay? But... There's even something else going on here. I want you to notice the type of woman that is celebrated. And it all flows to the end of the chapter where it says, a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. It, it is a call, just like Proverbs 1-7 looks at all of us, but especially these men that Proverbs has written to, these young men. And it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's saying the fear of the Lord is this idea that is in Scripture that says, I see God for who he is. I see myself for who I am. 
I am broken in need of redemption. And so I run to Jesus out of awe and reverence, out of fear. I run to Jesus needing his salvation, his redemption. And this is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because until I understand my sinfulness and need for a savior, the beauty of the gospel, I am never going to get wisdom in this world. We have a world that is lacking massive wisdom. But here's a woman who, who fears the Lord, and we need to praise that and honor that. But your worth is not even tied to that. The gospel says when you were unworthy and undeserving, Christ died for you. Your worth is not even in how well you praise the Lord. Your worth, men and women in this room, is in the beauty of your humanity. And we see this in the Bible in the story of Hosea and Gomer when Gomer is a prostitute. Hosea marries her. She ditches him and goes back to the life. And God tells Hosea to go find her because her worth to him is infinite. Go find her, pay off her pimp, and bring her home. So, so in that first verse where it says, I mean, look, look real quick at the very first verse, verse 10, where it says, she is far more precious than jewels. Ladies, I declare from the scripture that that is true of you. And it has nothing to do with the way you've lived your life. God loves you. There is beauty in your humanity. You are more precious than jewels. And what happens is this proverb, in a beautiful way, begins to celebrate some things that the barefoot, pregnant, stay-at-home may not. Now, it, it, let me tell you some things that this proverb celebrates. It celebrates godly women. Verses 11 and 12, the last few verses, a woman who fears the Lord. It celebrates working woman, a woman who has a role in the culture, a role in the world where she is doing, doing things that is a business. She ends up at the city gates. That's a place of commerce. She ends up selling her, her goods to merchants. I mean, there are all kinds of places in this proverb where it says, here's what the woman does and she works. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't work outside the home that this woman or that woman's better. It's just saying that this vision of womanhood that I had, like I've had several times people confront me and say, if you were really a godly man, your wife would stay at home. And if she was a godly woman, she would. I'm telling you, that is Horse manure. It's just, there is a way to live the mandate that God has for you, ladies. We need to find balance. This is not a sermon on that, but your worth is not in if you stay home or not. And the church should never have said, this is what it looks like to be a woman. Because that's not this woman. It's not this woman. We, we see that she's a working woman. We see that she is a strong woman. Verse 17, verse 25. In verse 10, it says an excellent wife is, is, uh, has this value. An excellent wife is hard to find. That word excellent sounds like, oh, man, I'm looking for the excellent wife, the good wife. The word here actually means strong like an army. It is celebrating strong women. It is okay to be a leader. It is okay to be a strong woman. I am thankful I live in a house full of them. I've got a, a wife who's a strong woman. I have three daughters. And I love it. That is to be celebrated. She is a family woman. We see that in multiple passages. She's a generous woman. Verse 20 tells us that she is generous to the poor. She is a teaching woman. Verse 26, affirm the fact that she teaches 
And, and the word here that, that refers to what she teaches is Torah. It's the, the same word that we get the, the law in the Old Testament, the instruction from God. And it's saying, listen, this is a woman who teaches and has some level of authority. And it doesn't say she teaches her kids. There is teaching in this text. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. And, and, and she is a leading woman. She is a leader. So in verse 30 and 31, it speaks of her coming to the gates, the gates of the city, uh, are the place where commerce, government, all these sorts of things happen. And so what we have here, this is actually an, a, a beautiful acrostic poem about the value of women that is designed to be read not literally, so this is the only way to do it. It's designed to paint a picture of the type of femininity that is to be celebrated. And I'm here to declare to you that this is not the type of femininity that, that I've seen celebrated in a lot of church settings that I've been in. Ladies, God made you, he loves you, he is for you. Live out the mandate of what it means for you to be a woman who fears the Lord. Now, what I have to do now with that text in mind is I need to give you some theology. Um, Nobody likes this, this is where everybody's eyes gloss over, we start falling asleep, you know. But we need to lay a grid work to help us understand in our culture what the Bible actually does teach us. So this is kind of a 30,000 foot view, but in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we have the basis of this theology laid out in the creation story as God makes Adam and Eve the first two people, but then represents gender, Adam representing masculinity and men and uh, Eve representing women, and what we see is, is some beautiful, rich things here. So verse, chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, I think it'll be up here on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every uh, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see this beautiful narrative where God helps us understand our humanity. And at the core of what it means for us to be human is the fact that we were created in the image of God. This is one of the things that as we wrestle with purpose and meaning in the world, like a secular world is, is just devoid. They cannot give you any meaning and purpose that you don't make up for yourself, but at the end, it's nothingness. And the Bible looks at you and says, you, the God of this universe, the Trinitarian Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God of this universe, created you and me in his image. There is the imprint. Now, that's a whole nother sermon to strike, like not just one sermon. We could preach 52 weeks. I could preach the rest of my life on the implications of just that phrase. But what I want you to see is that gender, male and female, are part of the purposefulness of this creation. And that he made men in the image of God and women in the image of God, but he did not make them the same. There are infinite number of things that are exactly the same between men and women in the image of God, and there are infinite differences. And and we have to be careful to celebrate both of those. And so a few thoughts about the theology of gender from the Scripture, okay? And this is one of these things where if you're like, all right, I get stuck on one of these, call me, let's have coffee, we'll have a greater discussion. I don't have time this morning to spend hours unpacking 
which should take hours. But let me just make some statements. Number one, the creation of men and women in the image of God points to the fact that our humanity always pictures and points to something greater. Our world doesn't get this. It's why we have to keep holding on to this. Your humanity and the fact that men and women are different point to something greater than ourselves. It is, it is God has created an image of, of unity and diversity which ultimately points to him. This is true in marriage, as it all of a sudden marriage becomes like a husband and wife, the two becoming one flesh. Did you hear that? In Genesis 1, or in Genesis, uh, later in this, the chapter 2, it talks about the man leaving his father and mother and the two becoming one flesh. Unity, diversity, what does that look like? And it begins to paint an earthly picture of the Trinity. But later we see that marriage also points us to Christ and his love for his church. That my humanity is never about me. My humanity is always the reflection of something greater. And any time I turn and bend in and look at myself and say, my humanity is all about me, I'm going to misunderstand my humanity. It's just the way it's going to be. We were made for something greater, and we are a picture of something greater, and our gender is a reflection of that. Men and women being different and the same— unified and diverse, both in the image of God, is always picturing something greater than yourself. And our world doesn't know what to do with that, but we have to be the people who say, this is what our humanity is about. This is about that. And if I don't live my life for that, the world's not going to know what to do with it. I am here to glorify God. The chief end of your life, the whole purpose of your life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The way you do that is becoming a living reflection of the one whose image you were made of. And our humanity in in male and female reflects it. Number two, men and women are ontologically equal in worth and both included in the creation mandate. Now, that's big words. Ontological, ontology, that is our being, okay? That's a, that's a philosophy of being, and I know I'm giving you a headache by using big words this morning, but let me get there. What, what, what I'm saying, and I'm echoing theologians and philosophers in saying that in creation, there is equality. Men are not more important and better than women, nor are women more important and better than men. And notice in the, the creation, he doesn't, it doesn't say he created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It doesn't, the next verse doesn't say, and then he took Adam and said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and fill it, have dominion over it, and Eve, start cooking. Now this is important. There is so much in verse 28, so much about the mandate of humanity and our purpose but he gives that mandate to them as a couple. And they are equal partners in fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, exercise authority, overcreate, like that sort of thing. He gives that to them together. They are equal in who they are in their being as God creates a reflection of himself. And now they reflect God, they represent God in the world they are to fulfill. And they are equal in that mandate. Number three, men and women are intrinsically different and our gender is made by God as a gift to us and a way to reflect his glory. He does not, he makes them equal. He does not make them the same. Come back to this in a few minutes, but we have to see that and celebrate that. Ladies, your femininity is to be celebrated. Men, your masculinity. Now, 
We don't get there by creating an image of what it means to be masculine. This is one of the problems going on in the church right now. What does it mean to be a man? It means that I hunt things, I eat meat, I, I watch football, and we create this image of masculinity. And what God has chosen to do is make men diverse and women diverse where there are things that are common about us and there's a lot of things that aren't. And, and we can express what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman in, in a myriad of different ways. You don't have to fit into a, a, a culturally created model or mold to be a man or a woman. But there are some things that it does mean to be a man, some things it does mean to be a woman. We need to, to, to figure out that those differences are beautiful and rich and meaningful, and they're part of God's design. So number four, God's design is for man and woman to be equal, yet fulfilling different roles in the home and the church. Now, this is, again, a massive issue. I'm going to skim it because I can't spend a lot of time here. But what the Bible begins to teach is that men and women are equal, but they have different roles. And the places where God looks at humanity and says, and here's where these different roles need to show up, he looks first at the home. And there is a call for the husband to be the head of the home, the wife to be the heart, the husband to lead, the wife to follow. But the leadership in the home, like we get, I get it. For some of you, you hear wives submit to your husbands and the hair on the back of your neck stands up because you have been in or seen abusive relationships where the way men lead it by, was by thumping their chest and putting you in your place. And let me tell you, guys, our mandate is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The weight of the, the, this mandate towards husband and wives places way more weight on us. And, and we need to work towards it. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I do not fail in this, but to strive to become the type of husband who loves my life, my wife, and my kids the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this then fleshes over into the church, and again, a whole number, another sermon for another day, but what we end up with is the core role of elder or pastor in Scripture is reserved for men. Okay? And, and, and the, 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 the um, theology of this is called biblical complementarianism. Now, it's not compliment, like uh, biblical say something nice about your wife-ism. Complement means two pieces that come together and fit as a whole. That, that men and women in marriage, in the church, there is unity in the, the diversity of men and women coming together in beautiful ways. And, and, and the, the simplest reason, this is not everything, but the simplest reason I believe that the logic behind that in the scriptures is that God is upholding the order he placed in the home, in the church, so that we don't, you don't end up with a, a, a pastor who's a woman who now has this spiritual authority over her husband in the church that flips the order in the home. Now, that, that, that's one of the reasons. There's a whole bunch of other things. And that's, again, cup of coffee. Let's go have a conversation about it. Uh, but this is what is pictured. But hear me. Then the elders of the church are called to make disciples of all people, equip them, and, and, and engage them, deploy them for mission. Which means... The elders at our church who are men's job is to look at the women and go, what do we do to empower them to be all that God created them to be and to set them loose? That's our job. And hold the elders accountable to do that. Okay? 
And so th- this is the, the view called biblical complementarianism. We hold to it that says we are equal, but there are differences. Those differences show up in roles. But the other thing I will tell you is that there is nothing in Scripture to say those roles have anything to do with anything outside the church and the home. In other words, anywhere we are not standing for the equality of women in pay, we're missing it in the workforce. And by the way, wives submit to your own husbands is not women submit to every man in the church. It's just not. We are to mutually submit to one another in love. That means I need to submit in the context of church to women in the church who are leading in certain spaces. And that becomes part of the beauty of Christianity. So number five, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 has wrecked it. All of it. Everything throwing the purpose of God in our humanity and sexuality completely out of balance. It's wrecked at every place. And the story of human history is the wrecking of gender being placed under powerful men who use strength and power to oppress women. And it is the history of all of humanity. And what's happening in our culture is that pendulum is swinging, and it's swung way past where we're at to the other end. And so let me share with you two uh, ditches we could end up in that our culture is always ending up in, and the church can get sucked into. Ditch number one we can end up to is over-inflating the differences. So what our focus is on is not on the beauty of equality uh, in our being, the fact that we're both made in the image of God. What we do is we, we totally focus on men, women, and what it means to be a man and a woman, and we overinflate the power of men. We, we, we tell women that they have a certain role, and that role is to play is, is certain things, and, and then that just keeps, the, like that, we just keep overinflating that so that cultures and the church itself ends up in a place where, yes, we do uh, marginalize and push women to the side. We, we jump on and we become part, like the cultures at large, at large and, and in the church, we do sometimes denigrate women because we're not reading the scriptures holistically. We're pulling a few passages of verses. Uh, we got people stand up and say, see, it says there, wives submit your, your husband, women submit. And, and that's all we have to say to it. And then it sounds like, all right, you have a job. Your job is to live as a servant to your husband and make him good coffee, right? And the world hears us say that and says, yep, that's who they are. And we're not reading the, the Bible holistically. We're not even coming here going, man, this, this woman had a business and was a civic leader. And so we overinflate this and we end up with, with cultures like Rome where women, like I said, were nothing more than property. We end up with cultures like um, early America where, where we, women weren't allowed to vote until the 1920s. And we don't see the beauty of humanity in every woman. We just see the differences and we overinflate that. Now, that has been the majority voice of every culture and throughout history. And I think there have been a lot of places where the church has failed to be prophetic towards that. But we are now in a culture that has fully swung the pendulum. So the first ditch is overinflating the difference. The second one is flattening the differences. So that we celebrate the equality of people, but we don't see the beauty of diversity in the way God has made us. And very specifically, we're going to get rid of gender as even a category. So we now live in a culture where gender makes, doesn't even make sense anymore because we started down this road in our culture flattening the difference to say equality means same. 
And therefore, to be equal means that a woman has to be able to do everything that a man can do, and a man has to be do, to do everything that a woman can do, and therefore, equality means same. And we know that that doesn't work. Um, I, I, I know this, that, that if it came down to men actually being able to have babies, not going to happen. <laughs> People are like, men can tolerate pain better. No, we can't. No. Nope. No, not because everyone, every, every dude in here would be like, okay, that's what's going to happen? No, I'm tapping out, man. And the human race would have died off like extinct thousands of years ago, right? I, it, they're, they're, we're just different, and those differences need to be celebrated. And what's happening in our culture, we're flattening the difference, and we flatten them so much, so much, that we are now in a culture who doesn't even know what a man and a woman is. That didn't start with the transgender movement. It started with this massive over, like we need to see. It was, it, it was a shift from every culture inflating the difference. It is a shift to a flattening of the differences. But man, it happened so fast so that now I identify as whatever means that I am. And the craziness of our moment where you know, I mean, I'm not going to go into details. I'll, I'll, I'll have to repent later of the things that I would say. But we see it with things that are being promoted, things that are being sold, things that are being celebrated. Even in our own town yesterday in St. Louis with the Pride Parade. There, there is, it's not just anymore that we're talking about gender and sexuality. We're now saying gender is a cultural construct, is a social construct that has no meaning anymore. We flatten the differences. And, and, and we can't land there either. But here's what I'm trying to say to you, church. We need to be prophetic both ways, in both directions. And sadly, often the church was silent when we overinflated gender. And now we're mad as all get up when it's being flattened. Okay? So, how does the Bible wrestle with this? And let me just real quick give you a few ways that the Bible helps us with gender. And the first one I think you will find interesting, and that is this, that it, people will read the Bible in 2023 and read the practices that happen and see them as sexist. Oh, look, there's the Bible oppressing women. There's the Bible putting women in their place. There's a, but they're not reading it culturally in the, from the culture that it's set in. And this is a whole, again, another whole nother sermon, a whole nother long discussion but I am telling you this is true, that at every place in Scripture where the Bible steps into men and women in the culture, it is looking at the culture that is, and it is telling the people of God, you cannot treat women like your culture treats them. You have to have a better story. Now, that better story is not what we think it ought to be in 2023, but it is a better story for women living in that culture. I'll give you one weird example. There's this whole idea in the Bible of the Leverite marriage. A woman is married to a, a man, and he dies, and she doesn't have children. What are you going to do with that woman? Well, you're going to give her to her brother as a wife, and when that woman has a son, that son is actually going to be technically a son of her first husband. And we look at that and go, they're just trading women around? This is nuts. What's wrong with the Bible? It is speaking to a world where some cultures in the ancient world, and believe it or not, there are some cultures that do this, that when the man died, they would tie the woman alive to the corpse and burn them both. It is speaking to a world where if they didn't do that to women, 
It, they didn't do that to women. Women who were married, who didn't have children, had no generations to take care of them, were just cast off, and they would end up going into the culture, and their only option was to be a beggar, or worse, to turn into a prostitute. And God looks at his people and goes, not my people, not my people. You're, you're going to treat your women better than that. And in a world where having children was a way for women to have a place in the family, we can say, that's not the way it should be. Amen. I will echo that. It was the world that was. And in that world, God is saying, not my people. You're going to treat these women better. You're going to include them in the family. You're going to give them an inheritance. You're going to give them a place at the table. And as weird as it sounds, it's the God's way of saying, in this world, you're going to treat her like an image bearer and not like a piece of discarded meat. That, that's what's happening. Everywhere in the Bible, the Bible is pulling his people in the direction out of the culture it is in, in a direction to treating women like the Genesis 3 mandate, Genesis 1 mandate. Okay? Now, Come call me. I'll show you multiple other places in the Bible where that is actually what's going on. We read it today and go, that's terrible. And if we were to read it in the context, we'd go, oh, God is being so good. He is loving women. This gets all the way to the New Testament and the fact that women are there and part of the story uh, of, of, of the, the Gospels at Jesus' tomb and the early church. This is why women flooded to the church in early Christianity. Number two. The Bible celebrates the leadership and accomplishments of all kinds of amazing women. How does the Bible answer this question? It celebrates the leadership and accomplishments of all kinds of amazing women. We have women like uh, Deborah, who was a judge in the book of Judges, who led the people of God back to repentance. She was a leader. We have Ruth, who was an outsider, uh, not even a Jew, but she gets included in the family of faith through her loyalty, her commitment, her trust in the Lord, and she becomes the great-grandmother of David in the line of Jesus. We end up with Priscilla in the New Testament, who takes a young pastor, a preacher named Apollos, and Apollos could preach, but his theology was off. And it's Priscilla who sits down and teaches him correct theology so he can go preach. We, we have the women who are Jesus' disciples who are the first people to the tomb. When the disciples are cowering in a room and they're the first preachers of the gospel in the culture of the risen Christ. The Bible celebrates, and this is just a few, there's lots and lots of examples where the Bible's going, look at the beauty of these, these women who were leaders, who were teachers, who were prophets. There are women prophets, there are women king, uh, leaders, not kings, queens. There are women who, who lead in culture, there are women, women business people, there are women leaders in the church. These are all celebrated in the scriptures. And third, the Bible celebrates women as equal participants in redemption and the covenant community. This is always true. That is, it's not here's the men and women. You kind of hang out in the outside. They're always included in. Rebecca McLaughlin in her, in her book, um, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, tells the story of her daughters coming and saying, why didn't Jesus have any women disciples? Now, what's the answer to that? Her answer is, oh, he did. He did. There are reasons God called 12 men to himself. That is rooted in complementarianism. Well, that's a different conversation, different day. But he had great women disciples. And all the gospels show us this, this band of women. They become, if you read carefully, they become the primary benefactors of Jesus' ministry. In other words, Jesus, what he did cost a little money. To move from town to town, to be able to stay in places and eat, cost a little money. It was a group of women who bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that? 
And they are true. And here's what happens. The 12 disciples, one of them sells them out, goes and commits suicide. Here's Jesus at the crucifixion, and his disciples flee. But the women are there. His women disciples are at the cross. It's what we now know as Easter Sunday morning, but they wake up thinking they have a dead Savior, and they're not sure what to do with it. The men are cowering, terrified of the Roman government. The women show up, and they're ready to take on a Roman guard to get to see Jesus. And Jesus appears to them first. Isn't that beautiful? That is the witness of Christianity, the celebration of women who are part of the covenant community and included as full members so that Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 28 said for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew or Greek slave or free neither male or female you are all one in Jesus Christ now listen he is not flattening gender here what he is saying is that in the covenant community of the, that is shaped by the gospel, there is equal footing at the foot of the cross, and therefore, we in this room are in this together, and we are not going to see you because of your, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic, or your gender. We are one. We're in this together. That men and women are equal in creation, and we are equal participants in the covenant community that is the church. We're in this together. Ladies, we need you. We need you to be strong leaders who give your life to the mission of Christ with us, okay? So I'm, I'm thankful for strong women. I'm, I'm thankful for women leaders that we have in this church. I'm thankful for women who their strong leadership is loving their families deeply and well and immersing themselves in that call to raise up children and and, and who will love the Lord and maybe go be the missionaries who change the world. I'm thankful for women who, te- who are school teachers and businesswomen and, and have roles in the culture, and they're using that for the cause of Christ. So as I close, and the band heads up here, three real quick closing points that say this is who we're going to be as a church. Out of this, this is what I believe. Number one, we must receive what the Bible teaches about gender and the image of God as good and the best path for all of our flourishing. In other words, we must receive both the teaching that we are equal yet different and that in the context of the home and the church, the the way humanity flourishes is for us to live out those mandates. Okay? And so so we are going to be a church who believes that that is the best way for people to flourish. Second, we must be a safe place for women, especially if they're hurting, abused, have broken lives and needs support and love. Single moms, we, we celebrate you, and we want this to be a great place for you. Ladies who have gone through things where you've been, I mean, in a room like this, the statistics are that there are multiple women who've gone through some form of abuse in their life. And, and, and we hope this will be a place of healing where you can find relationships that can help guide you and help you grow. No matter where you are, we have to be a safe place for women. So the tone of our our conversation, the way we treat people, the way we deploy them has to reflect that. Number three, we must celebrate our women, value their gifts, disciple them, and deploy them for their great and glorious calling. We need to raise up women and men to go make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to serve. And so ladies, I hope that, that you've heard me say, we love you, we value you, you are so important 
for the cause of the kingdom and for the ministry of this church. And, and, and we want to be a great, safe place for you. And where we're not, we need you to help the elders understand where we're not. Like, come talk to us. If you're like, hey, I hear this. I don't think it is. Here's some areas that we need to have conversations. Listen, I will listen. We will listen. And we will try to, 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 to wrestle with that. But we love you. We're for you. And so what I want to do is I want to close this service or close my portion. I've got to get off the stage. But I want to close my portion by praying for our women. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, ladies, will you stand? Will you stand? Now, gentlemen, where you're seated, if your wife or daughters are near, you can do this towards them. If not, just around you, okay? Will you just kind of in a direction where there's a woman near you just... Don't, don't lay hands on anybody who's not your wife this morning, but, but reach out towards them. Okay? And, and here while I'm praying over our ladies, you in your place, like even out loud with your own words, lift up the ladies in our church. Pray for their safety, their well-being, that they will be honored, and pray that God will use them for the purpose of his kingdom. Time didn't give me time to tell you all the stories in church history of the great women who've been used by God for the purpose of the advance of his kingdom. We celebrate you and hope that you will join that cloud of witnesses. So let's just pray for our, our women this morning. Let's just lift them up and, and celebrate them and pray for them. So wherever you're at, like I said, just lift your hand in their direction, and, and you might even voice a silent or an out loud prayer while I'm praying. But let's pray in thankfulness for these ladies. Lord, we love you this morning. I am so thankful for the strong and beautiful godly women, the women who fear the Lord in my life, a, a mom who loved me, a mother-in-law who so often pointed me to Jesus, a wife who is amazing. I'm thankful for my three daughters and how you have wired them, how you were, you were using them for the purpose of the gospel and, and to, to make a difference among the nations. And I'm thankful for their, their service in our life. I'm thankful for the strong women who are leading at Genesis, who are uh, leading areas of ministry, who are overseeing our mission, who are making disciples, who are pouring in the lives of people. And I thank you that Genesis has amazing women and they've they've made all the difference in the world in this church and i praise you today for all the women who are here they are created in, in your image they are your gift to us we celebrate them and love them this morning we pray that they would know that they're loved here and that this would be a great place for women and i especially pray this morning for the women who are hurting who have gone through heartache, turmoil, who've been abused, who've been mistreated, who've been marginalized, who feel like their lives have been discarded, who even have church hurt from pastors or church leaders who have pushed them to the margins and treated them as less than the beautiful image bearers of God that they are. I pray that, that those women would find healing and grace in the cross, even this morning. We love you and praise you, Lord. You are good, and gender is a good gift given by God to us. We celebrate that this morning. In your name I pray, amen.